Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Live with Doug. We are live on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, thinking through God's Word together. Glad that you are with us. I hope you had a wonderful weekend and especially a gathering with the saints uh, yesterday. I know that I did. Uh, this uh, small little fellowship that meets in my home. We had a wonderful discussion. We are working our way there through the book of Acts. Uh-oh, <laughs> I'm going to be turning this. Uh, okay, I don't know if y'all could hear that or not, but I was hearing myself in stereo uh, with a little delay, which is kind of obnoxious. Anyway, we had a great discussion yesterday. We are looking at the book of Acts in the Sunday Fellowship, and we came across this passage that was um, a great illustration of the things that we're seeing in Isaiah, as well as uh, a tie-in to our previous series on Romans 9 through 11, which we called, uh, What About Israel? Uh, do you remember in that series, the, if you were with us, or if you just know Romans 9, 10, especially 11, there is a, uh, a statement that Paul makes several times, actually, that Israel, in Paul's day, that is in the first century, uh, they were hardened, right? They were hardened uh, against the truth of God. Uh, Keith says the uh, the broadcast here is breaking up. Does anybody else uh, experiencing that as well? Again, I think that's usually on YouTube's end. I don't think there's anything on my end, but anyway, I'm going to keep plowing along and hopefully it'll clear up for you. So uh, in Acts chapter 5, there's this account where uh, Peter... And the other apostles are performing great signs and wonders. And there's the one event that is shocking as you read through. Uh, okay, Sherry says something is going wrong. Oh, I see now. Um, uh, on my end here too, it's just spinning, spinning, spinning. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna go on and uh, hope that it clears up soon. And if not, then I'll post a better video for you. You can go back and, and watch it. Um, I don't think it's on my end, but I hmm, I can't be sure. I'm going to press on and, uh, again, see if, uh, if it clears up for you. Please let me know if it, uh, if it does. So in, uh, Peter is, uh, well, so the, sorry, I'm a little distracted here. I'm distracted because your comments are, are relaying that it's uh, buffering and choppy and, and all that. Um, let me just, for those of you listening on podcast, uh, I know this is, this is frustrating for you. Um, all right. So in, uh, so, <laughs> Ananias and Sapphira. Do you know that story? The the uh, the Christians in the early church are they're selling their property and they are bringing the proceeds from the sale of that property to the apostles and allowing the apostles to distribute that money to whoever has need. It's a, it's a great illustration of love and community and koinonia that that fellowship that that commitment to one another that the early church had and that we all should have as Christians. And Ananias and Sapphira, two believers, a husband and wife, they sell a piece of property. They basically 
proclaim to everyone that they are giving the entire uh, amount that they collected from the sale of this property. They, they're putting on, a, on appearances, basically, that they are giving that entire amount to the apostles, like everyone else was doing. But in fact, they made more than they uh, presented. So they sold it for X amount. They gave less than that, but they presented it as though they were giving the full amount. And in a very shocking, startling uh, outburst of God's wrath, uh, God strikes Ananias dead. And then a little while later, his wife comes and Peter asks him, you know, did you sell that property for this amount? And she says, yes. And he says, why did, uh, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? And, and she dies as well. And fear spreads throughout the entire uh, community. And through all the through all Jerusalem, for that matter, and and you can get that right. This is the new covenant where we see some of these in the old covenant. We see fire coming out uh, and consuming Aaron's sons because he sacrificed, uh, or they sacrificed uh, inappropriate fire. And we have Uzzah who touched the Ark of the Covenant. But this is the new covenant. This is the New Testament scriptures describing uh, the situation. And so fear spreads to the whole community. You know. These apostles are representing Jesus, and you need to take them seriously because you need to take him seriously. And so after that, uh, as the, the fear spreads, more and more people are coming to faith in Christ, and the apostles are performing all kinds of miracles, signs and wonders such that even if, uh, if Peter's shadow would walk by someone who is ill or demon-possessed, then uh, they would be healed, that kind of thing. So it's amazing what's going on there. The, the same kinds of activity, the same kinds of miracles that Jesus was performing, now the apostles are performing, and people are seeing this and responding and coming to faith. And you remember what the chief priests did in response to this? They arrested the disciples or the apostles. They flogged them. They told them, stop preaching in the name of this Jesus. And we were discussing this in, the, in their fellowship yesterday. How, how could they have been so hard-hearted? People are being healed. Demon-possessed people are being released from the possession of these demons, the power of these demons. And all the, the, the apostles are doing are preaching forgiveness of sin, the, the gift of the Holy Spirit, you know, these kind of things. Why? Would the high priests and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the rest, why would they be so insistent that the apostles stop preaching? And, and why weren't they impressed? Why didn't they believe the message of the apostles in the midst, in the face of all these miracles and things? Well, it's the same reason that uh, when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, the Jewish leaders, instead of saying, whoa, this man is sent from God. We need to listen to him. Instead, they said, we have to stop this madness. We have to shut him down. Otherwise, people are going to believe in him. Their hearts were hardened just as God said they would be, just as, as Paul, looking back, says this happened. Remember, here's from Romans 11. What then? What Israel is seeking, that's righteousness, uh, but based on the law, it is not obtained. Those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. This is a passive, right? This is someone else who's doing the hardening. Who's doing the hardening of these Jews of Paul's day? 
God is. Next verse, just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day. So this is a quotation uh, from Isaiah 29, from Deuteronomy, and there's some other uh, allusions here as well. So that's, sorry, my technology on my end now is uh, is acting up. It's going to be one of those days, but I'm pressing through. Let me know. Uh, actually, I can't see your comments anymore. So let me see if I can correct this very quickly and uh, so that I can see comments. All right, I think I'm back. Let me know if, uh, if you all are experiencing any more problems and I'll try to figure out if it's my end. So uh, God had declared that he was going to give them this spirit of stupor so that they couldn't see and couldn't hear. Well, we looked at this in Isaiah 6 last week, right? Uh, remember, Isaiah gets his call. He sees this vision of the Lord. He says, here am I, send me. And then God gives him this commission. Go and tell this people. So you, Isaiah, go and tell the Jewish people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Sir, so, do you recall? We talked about how, how Isaiah was given this uh, this task to preach God's truth, not for the purpose of clarifying and explaining and leading them to knowledge, but actually so they would not understand and would not perceive. Just the opposite of what you think. Teachers are like what I'm trying to do for you right now. I'm trying to explain things so that you will understand them and believe them. That's what a teacher does. That's what a good teacher does. But Isaiah was sent to harden his hearers against the truth. So with that in mind, let's look for a moment here at uh, something that occurred in Jesus's ministry. Okay, this is Matthew 13. That day, it says, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. And large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and he sat down and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. So you, you got the scene there. He's in a boat, a bunch of people out on the, on the seashore there on the, on the beach. And Jesus starts talking to them. He spoke many things to them in parables. And here's one of the things that he said. Behold, the sower went out to sow. And he sowed, or as he sowed, some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. Others fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. Others, other seed, fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And then Jesus finishes with this little phrase that he used over and over again. He who has ears, let him hear. So he tells this little story. Now, one of the most powerful tools of a good teacher is the tool of illustration. 
the, the worst teachers are those who simply stand in front of you with a manuscript and read nothing but prose, nothing but paragraph after paragraph after paragraph of um, simply logical presentation kind of thing. Those are not the kinds of teachers that grab your attention and really communicate to your mind truth. For most of us, just pure, rational, syllogism kind of of, uh, presentations don't stick. We're a multi-sensory being and we need the visual. Visual helps things really settle in. All right, so if you go to today's presentations, uh, maybe a job presentation, uh, a corporate gathering kind of thing, or lots of stuff online. And I've used this over and over again in, in these uh, in these teachings. Anything visual, right? If you can draw a picture, it, it's kind of the difference between um, Microsoft users and Apple users. <laughs> uh, you know, the it's it's become almost a, a meme worthy. Uh, joke these days, you know, Microsoft users tend to use PowerPoint and you'll have a slide that is just chock full of words and bullet points. And the presenter will just walk you through every bullet point and read everything on the slide. And you think, well, they could just hand it to me and let me read it myself, right? If all you're going to do is, is go through and read it, well, let me read it, right? Whereas, Apple users, Keynote is the uh, Apple version of PowerPoint. Uh, if you ever watch a, uh, an old Steve Jobs presentation, and Apple continues to do this to this day, uh, there will be just one icon or one picture, maybe one word on the, on the screen, and then the presenter describes it. That's oversimplification, and I don't, don't really want to get into a battle between these two, but there's a reason. Steve Jobs made the keynote presentations very popular, very famous, and it was a significant part of Apple's growth and, uh, and, and rise to the top in certain areas of technology uh, because of these presentations. And he understood the importance of that picture, that, that one image that would uh, that would communicate so much as he's also speaking audibly. So we again we're we're multisensory. We we like different input. Well, the illustration, the the verbal illustration, can accomplish some of the same thing as uh, the picture. If you can paint a picture in people's heads, uh, even that phrase I just used is an example. Paint a picture in people's heads. Right, you can't actually paint a picture in people's heads, but we use that metaphorical, metaphorical language to illustrate, to communicate. Well, a parable, the word itself is a, a combination of two Greek words, which means the, the, the root is balo, which means to throw. And for every Greek student, we love the word balo because we have a mnemonic device right there, balo, ball. What does balo mean? Throw a ball. I throw, right? So balo means to throw, and para means alongside. So a parable, uh, etymologically, is something that's thrown alongside. It's a story. It's a it's a word picture. It's something that's thrown alongside teaching for the purpose of illustrating so that people will understand. 
Jesus will go on and speak lots of parables that are captured here in Matthew 13. And it'll be something like the kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a treasure out in a field and he went and bought the entire field so he could have that treasure. I'm simplifying that, but that sticks, right? He found a treasure and he wanted, he was willing to spend all that he had to buy the fields so that he would own the property where that treasure was. We've looked at this earlier. Uh, I think it was last week where um, Jesus refers to the vineyard parable. The vineyard parable, God uses a parable, an illustration. You know, I've created this vineyard and protected it and provided for it, and and, and yet it didn't produce any good fruit. And then Jesus takes it and, and expands on it a little further. And he says, I, you know, I sent my, uh, the vine, the owner says, I'll send my servants and I'll send my son and all that. Those are, those are things to illustrate and, and draw out uh, images and, and communicate truth. That's why we tend to use parables in teaching or illustrations. So Jesus uses this parable here about the sower going out. He throws seed all over. Uh, you know, you can if you've ever used the spreaders, the, the fertilizer spreaders, and think about filling that with seed and just scatter seed everywhere, and some on this kind of soil, some on that kind of soil. And you think, okay, he's telling a parable for the purpose of teaching his disciples here along the seashore something about the kingdom of God. But then he throws on this little phrase at the end, he who has ears, let him hear. And you think, well, presumably all of those who are following him have ears. So what is he getting at? Well, he is alluding back to Isaiah chapter 6, what we already looked at last week. I already read it to you. Tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. You people that Isaiah is coming to, you have ears, you have eyes, and the words are connecting with your eardrums. The things that you see, they're connecting through your eyeballs. But God says, I want you not to be able to hear and really understand what it is that I'm saying. Isaiah was going to go to a people, teach them truth, and God was going to work intentionally to prevent their understanding. So Jesus speaks in his parables, and the disciples have a question for him. This is Matthew 13, 10. The disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them? in parables. I find that a very interesting question. It's obvious he's a teacher. This was common. You remember uh, Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, they all used parables. They all used stories. You know, the famous cave illustration where there's you know, a guy in the cave and he sees the, the shadows dancing on the wall because of the sun coming in and goes out into the light. I mean, that's a famous parable. Ancient teachers did this all the time. So it's very strange that the disciples would ask him, why are you speaking in parables? It seems obvious, right? Look at Jesus' answer. To you, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. 
but to them it has not been granted. Mysteries, remember, we've looked at this in other series. Mysteries are the things that were hidden that have now been revealed. Jesus is saying to these nearby disciples, to his followers there, it's been granted to you. God has given you the ability to understand these things that were formerly hidden that now have been revealed. But to these people following along, these people on the on the beach there, to them it has not been granted. Why? Well, these are among the group that Paul here is talking about in Romans 11. They've been hardened, God giving them a spirit of stupor. And if you want to know about more about why, go back and watch that series. It's a long series. It's a very thorough series uh, called What About Israel? But we look, we dive into this more carefully. But this is God bringing this hardening to the, the generation of Jesus, this first century generation. Jesus goes on and says, For whoever has, to him more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables. Do you see the irony here? I speak to them in parables because while seeing, they do not see. And while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, quote, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, speaking to his disciples there. For truly, I say, uh, blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. Your eyes see and understand. Your ears hear and understand what they're hearing. You, remember he said, let those with ears hear. You, disciples, you have ears. God has given you the ability to understand. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see and hear what you hear and did not hear it. Hear then the parable of the sower. And he goes on and explains the meaning uh, so that his disciples here would understand uh, the intent of his parables. So there's irony here. And and we need to know what the, the literary definition of, of irony is. In literature, irony is this technique where the audience understands what's going on, even though the um, uh, the characters in the story don't. John uses this over and over again, and we see a bit of it here. Because if you know Isaiah, and as I have prepared you for it from Romans, Isaiah, you know that this generation of Jews uh, has largely been hardened to the truth. God is judging that generation, that first century generation of Jews. He's judging them and bringing, as Jesus says, bringing all of the sin of those who've murdered the prophets and killed God's people for generations and generations. He's bringing all of that on that first century generation. So when Jesus, the the irony is when Jesus speaks a, a parable, a story that is intended to illustrate truth, and clarify and help people understand the truth, 
the irony is God is prohibiting. He is, he is, um, he is hardening. He, he's, he's giving a blindness and a deafness to these people so that they can't understand. So this parable that's sent to illustrate actually hardens them. Now, they may understand the meaning at a, at a uh, cognitive level where they could repeat the illustration like they do with the parable of the vineyard, but they are blind to the significance of it. They don't believe it. This is why in Acts 5 that we were talking about where these chief priests, the, the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, when they witness these great miracles that could only be done by the power of God, instead of falling on their face and worshiping God and thanking him for the release of these captives and the healing of, of the sick and the, the freedom of the demoniacs and all of that and saying, yes, these men have been sent by God. This is great. And they're preaching forgiveness of sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Instead of receiving all of that and worshiping God and thanking him, they say, we got to shut these men up. we got to stop this. They're greedy. The, the chief priests and so on, they're greedy. They're power hungry. They want... These men stopped because peoples are starting to listen to them. And they're so blind to what's right there before them because God had predicted this would be the case. That this generation would not listen to the truth. One more, and then we will wrap it up for the day. At the end of the book of Acts, we find the apostle Paul arrested. He's in Rome. He's arrested. But he's in house arrest and he continues to preach the truth and invite people. The way the house arrest worked there is uh, people could come visit and bring food. In fact, if, if friends didn't bring food and water and that kind of thing, then uh, the prisoners might starve to death. Uh, so he's there and he's, he's teaching. And we find this at the end of the book of Acts in chapter 28. When they had set a day for Paul, they came to him, these Jewish People, that's the context. Jewish men had come to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets from morning until evening. So these Jews are coming, in, and Paul's doing what Paul did. He is proclaiming the word they knew, the Pentateuch, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And the prophets like Isaiah. And he is trying to show these Jewish people that Jesus is the one. He's the coming one. He's the fulfillment of all of these predictions and prophecies. He's the king and the kingdom of God has come. And they need to believe in Jesus and receive forgiveness and enter the kingdom and not be uh, subject to God's judgment that is coming. And here's the response. Some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, so there's great dissension among the believers and unbelievers, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. <laughs> Paul goes out with a bang here, or actually I guess he sends them out with a bang regarding the ones who wouldn't believe him. He says, the Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet to your fathers saying, go to this people and say, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull. 
And with their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and return, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you, this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. So he quotes again from Isaiah, the passage we've been looking at, Isaiah 6. And uh, he says, rightly did Isaiah speak to your fathers. So we need to understand that in Jewish mindset, a son is not always someone who is biologically the offspring of a father, but a son is the one who acts like someone else. For instance, when Jesus uh, says to the, the Pharisees, you claim to be sons of Abraham, but you're not sons of Abraham, you're sons of the devil. Genetically, that's not true. Satan doesn't actually have offspring, and these Jews could trace their line back to Abraham. They were most definitely the children of Abraham in the, uh, the, the genetic sense. But Jesus there is using this Jewishness this, this idea of your father is the one whom you act like. If you were really the sons of Abraham, Jesus said, then you would believe in me because Abraham believed. But you are liars and murderers, Jesus said, like your father, the devil. Satan has been a liar from the beginning, Jesus said, and you were acting like him, therefore he's your father. So Paul here is saying, Isaiah rightly spoke to your fathers. Now the prophets, I mean the, 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 one that, the ones that Isaiah spoke to, you know, who knows whether these Jewish people in Paul's day could actually trace their lines straight back to any of, of the specific people Isaiah spoke to. But what Paul's saying is, you are acting like the men of Isaiah's day. When Isaiah preached truth of the coming wrath of God and salvation of God, the Jewish people of Isaiah's day rejected Isaiah and persecuted him and said, no, we're going to go serve other gods. These Jews that Paul is speaking to in the first century did the same thing. They rejected Jesus, the word of God, and the predictions of God and the truth of God, and they served other gods, not idols in the in the um, the traditional sense, but they rejected the one true God and His Messiah. So Paul here is saying you're acting just like them. And if you were again with us in the uh, What About Israel series, you know that uh, this was all part of the plan, and uh, that I believe that Israel's hardening has been lifted. So I just want to give you uh, Jesus is acting much like Isaiah; he's the fulfillment. Of, uh, of Isaiah's predictions, right? And he hardens the heart of his generation just as uh, Isaiah did, or rather God hardened the generation through the teaching of Jesus as well as the teaching of Isaiah. And tomorrow we'll come back and uh, pick up in Isaiah chapter 7 and see where that, uh, that continued. All right, folks, uh, our time is up. Hope that was uh, edifying to you. If you want to jump ahead, start reading Isaiah 7 through 11. And, uh, and see if you can trace some of the story through there. And we will, Lord willing, look at that starting tomorrow. Have a great day. God bless.